Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Then we will join together and get used to seeing each other before we head over to the new place. Yes, it will be crowded and there will be difficult parking, uh, but all that will be a part of it. Uh, also next week, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And then one more thing. We do believe that this week we think, but don't know, think, this is what they're telling us, that we will be given the keys to the new building, be keys of ownership this week. Uh, so then we're, we're planning on a couple of weeks of, uh, yeah, uh, a couple of weeks of uh, transitioning and moving there, uh, but getting the keys this week. And so um, what that means is uh, expect total and complete chaos, no order whatsoever. <laughs> Just kidding. We're trying to be, give as much order as possible, but we are intending to have multiple weeks of what we're going to call True Vine Unplugged, um, where there's no mics, uh, no TVs, uh, bringing back the hymnals and things, just like when we began as a church. And so that'll be good. And uh, then it'll be some transition moving over there. It's also our hope next week to announce what the first official uh, Sunday in the new building will be. So hang tight there. Some of it depends on when exactly we get the keys and such. So it's happening. It's coming together. Uh, We're getting there. We're almost there. So thank you for your patience as it's all happening. Well, let's look to the word of God, the word of the living God. Romans chapter nine. Let's read verses uh, nine through 13. Uh, to, uh, the intention today is to finish this paragraph that we've been working through. So begin with me in verse nine. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Let's bow and ask for God's help as we study. Oh Lord, our God, from you, through you, and to you are all things. We recognize the very point of our existence is to love you, know you, obey you, serve you, worship you. And we ask, oh God, that you'll help us to do that now, but also in the study of your word. Please, oh God, we pray, instruct us, sanctify us, challenge us, convict us, grow us, encourage us, delight our hearts, oh God, in such a way that we leave here and go live lives of obedience and and glad worship to you. So Father, we pray, bring this about. We pray, oh God, that you'll send your spirit to shine light on your word and to awaken us, oh God. Uh, Lord, I, I do pray just even physically, mentally, that we pay attention, oh God, that we be given grace to be able to understand and comprehend what your word is saying. But Lord, we pray that you go further than this, And Lord, that you will work so that we are awakened in that supernatural way that you do when your word is studied by people who want you. So Father, we pray, bring this about. Move amongst us, stir within our hearts, O God, 
that we will want to obey you. So please bring this about and help us in these specific instructions that we're looking at today. Bring about obedience, O Lord. We pray that you do more than just that. The Father, in these, these four specific things we're studying, please bring about obedience and that we will apply these things to our lives. So, O oh God, we pray, protect our service. Protect this time. Bless our little ones in the next room that they will hear your word and believe and bless us here, O oh God. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. When a husband and wife are united together in marriage and we give uh, counseling uh, to that new couple, one of the things that we'll tell them is that the primary responsibility that God gives the husband towards the wife is to love his wife. And the primary responsibility that God gives the wife to the husband is to respect him. But we, we need to go into more detail than that. Because if we only left it in such a kind of general uh, sort of terminology only there, we have sinful minds, faulty minds, and selfish desires, and we, we need to see the Bible go into more practical application to show here's what that love looks like. Here are uh, practical works that a husband is supposed to do and service he is supposed to give towards his wife and vice versa uh, going the other way there. And in a similar way, when we are born again and we come to be a part of a local church family, the primary instruction, the big banner that flies over how we are to treat one another is love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. But we have sinful minds, we have selfish desires, we need the Bible to get into more detail. We need the Bible to get into the weeds and to show us, well, here, here are practical ways that one believer is to live that out towards another believer. Here's the kinds of works of service that are to be happening within a church family. And as we've been studying this section of, of Romans 12, uh, verses 3 through 13, that, that whole section there has, has been all about how believers are to live in relationship to one another, and most specifically, in a church family, a church body. And the Bible's been getting specific. Here's practically what that looks like. So we saw verses 3 through 8 tell us, serve one another with the gifts that God has given you. And then it gave us uh, several practical ways that this is lived. And then in verses 9 through 13, where we've been spending some time, we have this list of 13 exhortations, and they are very practical kinds of ways that we are to be living in love and service to one another. We've made our way through nine of them. Uh, the intention today is to finish, finish this list up. Uh, so I'm going to start with number 10, which you'll find in the middle of verse 12 there. We're going to look at 10, 11, 12, and 13, if the Lord wills. So let's get started. Number 10 there. If you look in the middle of verse 12, look at this phrase, persevering in tribulation. So let's consider just this one as we begin. We're called as Christians to persevere in general, meaning the way that a true Christian lives a true Christian life and shows that they are in fact a true Christian, the, one of the biggest pieces of fruit to show whether or not the tree has been converted is making it to the end. It is enduring to the end without falling, without quitting, without losing faith. 
and without quitting in the endeavor to pick up our cross and to keep denying ourselves to follow after Christ. But the exhortation that's here in verse 12 is not just to persevere, but it is specifically, we're told, persevere in tribulation. So, so, so why the specifics that are there? Why, why that phrase added on to it? Well, perhaps it's because it, it is in times of trials and pain that we face, we face the greatest temptation to quit and to give up. It's not the only time a Christian faces temptations. Uh, the Bible shows us in, in things like the account of David that oftentimes when we fall to the most devastating or scandalous types of sins, maybe when life is smooth and gravy, like David fell in his sin with Bathsheba. But when it comes to quitting, when it comes to throwing our hands in the air and, and falling away from the pursuit of Christ, perhaps the greatest time is when we are in those seasons of trial and hardship. If, if you remember in the parable of the soils, uh, Jesus, Jesus gave that parable to explain how the word of God falls on people and their uh, different, different ways of responding to the gospel. Uh, and, the, and those ways can be divided into about four categories. One of those soils that the seed of the word of God can fall on is the rocky soil. And Jesus said that when it falls on the rocky soil, this is when a person hears the word of God and they like it. They agree with the Bible. There's something that kind of excites them with it and they may think that they turn to Christ, but because the roots do not go down, the plant springs up. It looks like there's gonna be life, but when the sun the heat of the sun hits it, the plant begins to wither, representing the fact, Jesus went on to explain, that when the heat of trials come, and sometimes the heat of persecution comes, this is when some people determine this is just not worth it. And they lose faith and, and fall away. This is when many quit. But let, let me also remind you, there's more than one way to quit. There's the really obvious way of quitting where, where someone just denounces faith in Christ and they make it clear, they walk away. It's just really obvious that they no longer believe Jesus is Lord. But there's another way to quit. It is possible for a person to still say that they're a Christian, but they have quit. Because what does it mean to be a disciple? To be a disciple, what Jesus says is take up your cross. That means die to self. That means deny my fleshly desires. There are things I want to do. There are things I don't want to do, but the, the, the decision to follow Christ means we commit to do this thing. One of the ways of quitting is when a person still says out their lips that they're a Christian, but they are no longer willing to do what is difficult in order to follow after Christ. And it is in times of trials that we face the great temptation to quit. Now, before we go any further, let me, let me kind of talk a bit, a bit about this one. We've noted that in this text, um, some of the exhortations do not immediately seem to be clear in how they are loving and serving one another, because that's what this list is. So persevering in tribulation, it's possible somebody could read that and think, well, that has nothing to do with how we love one another and serve one another. That's more of a matter of personal obedience to God. But we've been seeing this point as we work through this, the, the, the cohesive thing that ties all these exhortations together 
is that all of these are ways that we influence and serve one another. We're in a body together. And what one member does affects everybody else. And so some of these exhortations like this, there really is a way that though it is first a matter of personal obedience, it is in service to one another. And out of all of those that's in this list, I think maybe there's four of them like that. I think this one is the weightiest of them all. That when it comes to a matter of personal obedience and it affecting others, this is really a significant one. When a member of a church family goes through a season of pain and heartache, and yet in the midst of it, they bless the name of God. And like, like David prayed in Psalm 51, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. When a member of the church body has bones that God has broken, and yet they will sing in joy to the glory of God, singing in hope. All of the rest of us see that kind of thing, and it has this sort of energizing and strengthening effect to our faith. When we see believers go through some trial and we see them march and bless the name of God and even rejoice in the midst of it, there is something that rises up inside of us that just says, yes, the, 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 the hope of the gospel is real because we know what the Bible says, but it's like God gives us a real world example of that's illustrating, that's showing this example. It's true. The hope that the gospel gives, it really does give someone enough to sing in joy while they go through trials. And so Christian, when you find yourself in pain and in hardship, don't quit. And you should do that, yes, for your own personal soul's sake. Yes, you should do that because God is worthy of it. You should do that because the angels are watching, Scripture says. But you should also march forward and bless the name of God because you know that, that in that season, it, it's a way of service. It's a way of serving the rest of the church family that God wants you to do. The body of Christ needs that kind of example. And so, and I did ask uh, her permission if I could use her name in this, in this illustration here. When uh, a member of our church family, LaVon, goes through a season of difficulty, like in the loss of her eyesight, and yet continues to bless the name of God, there's something that like brings tears to our eyes and says, the hope of the gospel really is enough. It is enough. And, and when, when this kind of thing began to happened with, with LaVon. She began to lose her eyesight. We had a conversation. And one of the things that she mentioned was that there's temptation to frustration, as you would imagine. And one of the frustrations being, she said, but I want to serve God so badly. And there were specific kinds of ways she wanted to that were shut off for a, at least a season of time. And we had the conversation of what we're looking at right here, that this is an act of service to the rest of the body. 
The body of Christ needs to see those kinds of examples where believers suffer and experience difficulty and yet bear up in strength and bless the name of God in the midst of it because it has this effect on the rest of us of energizing our faith. We see it as an example of God's goodness. And then whenever you go through a trial yourself, you have some examples you can look to and see he does carry you through. He doesn't let you go. He will carry you through these things. And so Christian persevering through tribulation, it is a way of serving the rest of the body of Christ. It is a way of honoring God by caring. It builds the church. And so let us endure. Let us endure through trials. To endure through a trial is not merely to survive it, but it is to keep bearing fruit. Remember, we've talked about when you go through some season of pain, the greatest test, the very first test, top priority test is this. Will you get on your knees and will you repeat with Job? Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of God. This is what it means to endure through a trial, not merely to survive it, to endure with patience. And persistence means that we don't give in to the bitterness. We don't give in to the darkness. We don't curse the name of God. We don't grumble in our hearts and we don't quit. To persevere through it means we, we persist in a life of obedience, bearing fruit to God, and we are striving to make it through well. We're thinking of all of the promises that God gives us in scripture of how he is working this for good. And we are striving saying, I want to glorify God in this trial. We must persist. We must not grow weary in doing good. There's a reason why that's a specific instruction that we're given in scripture. Do not grow weary in doing good. It's because there's a temptation to do so. There's a temptation to grow weary, to think it's no longer worth it. But we keep going. We keep persevering. We keep persisting. One foot in front of the other, running the race until we cross the finish line. I don't remember who said it, but I came across this quote at some point. It says this, the kingdom of God is littered with a landscape of half-built towers. It's a reference to that time that Jesus was talking about what it means to be a disciple and the, and the hardcore calling to take up their cross, be willing to die and suffer reproach for the name of Christ. And he said, no one who's going to build a tower to watch over their vineyard ever does it without first sitting down and counting the cost of, do I have enough to do it? And Jesus told us to do the same about being a Christian about, about uh, choosing to become a follower of Christ. He told us to count the cost, uh, to consider what it means to be a Christian, that, that high calling to take up your cross on the road of suffering and die and consider. And, and, and yet what we see is that it is oftentimes the case. It's a very common thing for people to start the race of the Christian life it's much more of a rare thing to finish it. And what we're called to in scripture, and we're shown that those who are truly in Christ, one of the fruits that they bear is that they do finish. They, they, they do, uh, they, they cross the finish line still trusting in Christ, still honoring God. 
And so Christian, it may seem like a, a real simple kind of instruction, but it's actually pretty profound when the Bible says, and it doesn't say it exactly like this, but here's how I'll, I'll word it. Don't quit. Don't quit. I mean, it seems so simple. And, and there are times in our life where we're reading through the Bible and it'll be one of those things like this, persevere, make it to the end. And we read it and we just kind of breeze through it. I know I do. And it's just kind of, yeah, yeah, I get it. And we sometimes take it as just an assumption, a given. Of course, I'll finish. But the more we come to know ourselves and the depth of our sin, the reality of our weakness, it's actually a miracle that anybody finishes. It's a miracle. If you make it, it will only be because God gave supernatural grace. The only way any of us are going to make it is to, to the end is by God's work. It's one of the great feats of the Christian life. It's one of the reasons why we ought to really give honor to older believers who have run the race for a long time. Re there's a reason why the Bible says we are to show respect and we are to show honor uh, to, to those with the, the crown of wisdom, a crown of glory. There's a reason why. It is one of the great feats of the Christian life to make it without quitting, without falling. And, and then if you add in to make it and not to have fallen to some scandalous sin or some devastating kind of sin, to have brought some reproach in the, to the name of Christ in some way. Because here's the reality. We don't understand how sinful we are. We don't realize how weak we are. We were talking this past Wednesday night in the book of Proverbs about the tongue. And one of the things we saw scripture says that the tongue is a restless evil. And we kind of paused on that one to say the only way we're going to keep guard of our tongue is if we know this reality. The tongue is a restless evil. Well, Christian, the Bible says similar kinds of things about our hearts. There's a restless evil that lives inside of us. And there are times where, you know, kind of like the grass when it doesn't rain for four weeks, uh, the grass goes dormant, um, but it's still alive, but it's just dormant, okay? And it will come back to life again after a few days of rain. Well, there's a similar kind of thing with the restless evil of our hearts. Th th there are times where it goes kind of dormant and we think, oh, I've reached this new, the plateau I've been waiting for of the Christian life. It's all going to be smooth sailing from here. I am now a professional Christian. Just watch me go, you know, kind of thing. No, the restless evil just went dormant for a little bit. It's going to come back. And you're going to face the temptation again. We're going to face the temptations to, to quit or at least to practically quit, to quit going hard in the race of following after Christ. So Christian, part of, Part of what we're saying is to make it, to keep going, it is going to take real effort. Oh, it takes the grace of God, no doubt, but the grace of God working with us is the way the Bible explains it. It is going to take a battle to keep pressing on. And we need to know that you can't let up. And trials are one of the times when we are the, at the most vulnerable to quitting. So when you enter one of those hardships, one of the things that we need to say to ourselves at the beginning of that trial is don't quit. Don't let my enemy win. Don't let my enemy win because if you quit, he wins, he giggles. If we quit, if we fall, he wins. Tribulations will come, expect them. First Peter tells us not to be surprised when they come. 
And Peter also said, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. M meaning this, there's only one road that leads to the city of heaven. It is the road that begins with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but on the rest of that road, there are hardships along the way. There's not the gravy train road that runs a parallel to it. There's just the one. And the reason why Jesus said the gate is small, the way is narrow, and there are few who find it is because of this. It is a difficult kind of road. We need to expect trials, and when they come, don't quit. Christian, persevere through tribulations. And then here's exhortation number 11. As you see at the end of verse 12 there, devoted uh, to prayer. Now, even as you just read that very briefly, notice that we're told not merely to pray, but to be devoted to prayer, meaning that prayer must become a significant part of our lives. Prayer must become an indispensable uh, part of our priorities of how we plan our week and how we plan our day. We're, we're told to be devoted to these things, that, that this be a commitment that we make. So the Bible is not merely saying, every once in a while, make sure you lift up a few things uh, to, to, to God. No, what it is saying is to make prayer a regular, disciplined, carved out part of our life. It's not at the leftover if there's some time left. No, it is to carve out time in our life for prayer. It is to be a significant part of our life. This word for uh, devoted, it's used 10 times in the New Testament and several of the helpful times it's used is in the book of Acts. So if you'll flip there with me, let me show you a few times that this is used. Uh, Acts chapter one, you can start there. In Acts 1, in verse 14, we have the, uh, this is before the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit had come. Uh, so this is just the 120 that were left after Jesus's uh, resurrection from the dead. And they still didn't know what all was going to happen, but they were um, instructed to wait. So here's what they were doing. Verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were meeting every single day, devoting themselves to prayer. What, what, is, what does that mean? It means they weren't just occasionally doing it. It means this was one of the goals of each day. We're going to come together. We're going to pray. Uh, jump to chapter two, though. Chapter two, the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes, uh, and the gospel is preached. And at the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Pentecost, God brought the great ingathering. 3,000 souls are saved. That 3,000 souls, God began to uh, work in their midst. And look at verse 42. Look at verse 42. Here's what this new group, the brand new church began to do together. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to, and then watch, watch the list, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. The word there is koinonia. Hang on to that. We'll, we'll see that in a little bit. Fellowship to the breaking of bread. That's to the Lord's Supper. And then to prayer. They, they weren't just occasionally doing these things. They were daily devoting themselves to these matters. What, one more that I'll just point out to you. If you go to chapter six, Acts six, verse four, we have the first deacons who are chosen. 
And the reason because is, is the workload of physical kinds of things had gotten too much that the apostles and elders were not able to devote their lives to prayer and the work of the word like they uh, knew they needed to. So verse four, this is what they say, choose deacons who will handle these physical matters, verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what we see there in Acts, those early parts are meant to serve as a model for the church. We're shown here is part of the reason why the early church flourished. Well, we're told in the book of Acts that they were winning souls to Christ every single day. Every single day. How does that come about? Well, it comes about by the work and the power of God. But humanly speaking, what was he doing? What were the people doing that God was inspiring to? They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They were devoting themselves to prayer. And so fruit came. One more place in the New Testament that I'll point out to you, Colossians chapter 4. I'll just read it to you very quickly. So we're told, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Keep alert in prayer, not just mindless repetition, not just sporadic kinds of things, but real work and attention given. And so here's the idea. We must see and believe that God has ordained prayer to be this means that we receive grace. We must see it and we've got to believe it. You, you can't just be believing that, yeah, prayer's nice. You should say a little, now I lay me down to sleep kind of thing before you go to bed because it's just a way of poetically remembering God. No, we are to see that prayer is a way that God has worked for us to receive grace. There, is, there are gifts, there's grace he wants to give and we will if we ask and ask with persistence. And, and speaking of that, there's another place in scripture that I think has a very powerful word to this as well. Romans 15, 30. If you look there real quick. Romans 15, 30. Here's Paul. And he gives a personal word to the recipients of this letter to these believers. And I, I want you to watch this. I think this is powerful. Verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So that's powerful even in English. Paul says to these believers, uh, Roman Christians, I want you to work with me in the work of the gospel. But Paul, we're not there with you. You can work as a partner with me. You can uh, bring help and power to me by you striving in prayer. That's powerful even in English. But there's something that also happening here that, that adds an even greater weight to it. The word for strive there in the Greek is, is the word agonizomai. You can hear in that where we get our English word agony, to, to strive in such a way that there's intensity to it. One of the things that is amazing is that's the exact word used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed for believers down through the ages and he prayed with such intensity that he sweat and he didn't just sweat, he sweat blood. The word agonizomai is used in that. Now watch this. This happens all the time in the Gospels. Jesus did some work and then believers are told to imitate that work. Okay, so Jesus took up his cross and carried it to death. Believers are told figuratively to 
pick up your cross and carry. Jesus washed feet. We are told, go and do likewise. Jesus trained and sent out workers. We are told, do likewise. This happens all the time. This is another one. Jesus prayed for people with such intensity that he sweat blood. And then the same word is used by the apostle. He knew what he was doing. The same word used by the apostle is then applied to us. So in other words, how are we to pray? We're not merely to pray at supper time. By all means, pray at supper time. That's great. We're not merely to pray little one minute prayers as we're going into a meeting. Do that, but not merely. We are to give work and effort to our prayers. We are to make it a significant part of our lives. And we must believe that this is God's method. There are hundreds, probably thousands of graces that if we ask and ask with persistence, God would give them. But if we do not ask, we do not receive. Think through when scripture addresses all the kinds of virtues that we should have, all the fruit of the spirit, all the acts of obedience that we should be doing and what would happen if we prayed for every single one of them? That'd be a long list. Those are the kinds of things we're taught to pray for. What about every sin that we struggle with? If we would list those out and pray for God to help us to die to those sins, it'd be a long list. What if we prayed with great intensity for ourselves and then did the same towards our children and then towards our church family? You can see why Jesus would sometimes spend entire nights in prayer. You're not going to run out of things to pray for. What we need to give is significant carved out time to this to devote ourselves to prayer. I encourage you even now, think of ways you could implement this into your life, significantly praying for the salvation of your children, significantly praying for the cause of the gospel globally, daily praying for the Hiki family, that God would give them endurance and encouragement and et cetera, and et cetera. Well, now exhortation number 12. You see it there in verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints. Now to clarify, when the Bible uses this word saints, this is not referring to a special group of Christians like the super uber duper holy ones, okay? No, that's an unbiblical usage of this word. The only way the Bible ever uses this word is to speak of believers and all believers, okay? If, if, if that idea is new to you, check out Romans chapter one, verse seven sometime. So the spirit calls us to contribute to the needs of believers. If you have never turned to Christ to be saved yourself, um, you're not yet a part of this, this group that the Bible is always talking about and uses a lot of different language to refer to. The people of God, uh, those who are right with God, uh, Christ people, the saints, the holy ones is what it means. All kinds of other ways it speaks of this group, the household of God. The way to join that is to trust in Christ to be saved. But for you who have, you are among this group called the saints. And we are commanded that we are to contribute to the needs of everyone else who is a part of this. Now, this word for contributing this is another one of those moments where like, like what's in the original language really shows something kind of special here. So this word for contributing, or if you've got an ESV, I think it's distributing or something like that. This word in the Greek is a derivative 
of the word koinonia. Koinonia is that really rich, beautiful word that refers to Christian fellowship. That, that kind of fellowship that whenever you're around other believers and your soul is energized and encouraged and strengthened, we have that camaraderie in the spirit. You come away from one of those times and you've just been kind of refreshed. That's koinonia, that is a rich, beautiful word. Okay, this word in the text is a word that comes out of koinonia. And so the idea is, I think, that out of the fellowship of the body of Christ, out of the love that overflows, we are to distribute goods to those in need. We are to give, we are to contribute out of the love of the spirit that we have within us. So that's a significant point. But a question that someone might ask is, um, why the saints? Why doesn't the Bible just say, contribute to the needs of everybody? You know, th this kind of language bothers some, that the Bible unapologetically um, tells us that we have a greater responsibility to one another within the body of Christ, even before and greater than those outside. So, so why does the Bible do this? Well, the Bible teaches this principle of varying degrees of responsibility and obligation, v varying levels of responsibility. Now, I think that's the kind of thing that may even be just included in natural law, like it makes sense to us when we hear it most of the time, I think. But the Bible does teach this principle clearly. So if, you, if you'll allow me a little bit of a kind of a sub-point parenthesis here, just kind of flesh this out a bit. The greatest level of responsibility that we have is first and foremost to love and know and obey and serve and worship the living God. That is the highest responsibility that we have. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the greatest responsibility. This is shown in the greatest commandment, okay? This is shown in things like every place in the Bible where a list of instructions is given about responsibilities. Where does it always begin? 10 commandments, it begins vertically. It begins with our responsibility to God. Romans 12, okay, where did we start? We started with first and foremost, the responsibility to God. But then when it comes to the horizontal, um, our, our, our responsibilities to one another. The Bible teaches this principle of varying degrees, weights of responsibility. First Timothy 5 is one of the places where we're shown this. So let me, let me tell you some things there. First Timothy 5, 8 says this, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, now think about what was said there. So if anybody, if, if there's a man who won't provide for his family, especially, it says, that, that language of especially, that's the language of greater weight. That's the language of greater responsibility. But what he says there is, if he won't provide for his own family, that's just embarrassing, okay? Like this isn't just Christianity 101, this is breathing 101, okay? Like there are even animals who do this, he is saying. If they won't even provide for their own wife and children, especially that kind of language there. But we see this. We're also shown in 1 Timothy 5 that we are to care for our aging parents. It comes up a couple times. Here's one of the ways. If any, verse 4, it says, If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family, to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable 
in the sight of God. So we're, we're hearing this language that uh, there's immediate family, that's the greatest responsibility. And then it extends out from there in family, and then it stretches out to neighbor, we are commanded to. Uh, we're told in scripture to care for the alien and the stranger in our midst, and then even going all the way out to our enemy. So taking that principle, here's what it means for the church. By the redemption that Christ has purchased with his blood, we have been adopted into the same family as we often say and often sing. We have been made into a family-like community. We have been made brothers and sisters. We have been united in a, in a household-like relationship that is there. And so scripture does say we have a responsibility to one another. And it's a responsibility that, yes, unapologetically is even greater than the responsibility we have even to those outside. The call to meet the needs of believers, this is shown, it's repeated throughout the New Testament. Actually, where we see it the most is an example. The apostles were constantly about this work. They would plant a church with the gospel, establish them, build them up to strength, and, and then they would begin to talk to them about the work of contributing to the needs of specifically suffering believers in Jerusalem, which you, you'll see it in many of the new letters of the New Testament. Talk about an offering that would be taken up to meet the needs of believers. And to apply this, you know, we here in this place where we live. We are among the wealthiest Christians in the world. We are among the wealthiest Christians of history, of history. Which means if anybody in the world has the responsibility to give to the needs of believers, it is us. It is us. We have the greatest responsibility in, in, in all of the world. And so, and, and we do, and by we, I mean, yes, our church does contribute to this. And yes, believers in our nation do a lot of contributing, but I do make the appeal, make sure you personally are contributing and doing so significantly. There are all kinds of ministries that exist out there that do this kind of thing. Our, our church even has partnerships with believers in specific places. Like you give $1, every dollar goes to that person that we can tell you about. We're, we're connected with a, a group of believers down in a village in Belize that we love them, care for them, um, and, and have a partnership with them. Uh, they they are, live a life that is often impoverished. These last two years of lockdowns have just absolutely devastated their lives. So many within this congregation do contribute. If you want to do that, find Miss Rachel. She can tell you more about how to do that. Yes, we would like to encourage giving to this. But to go a different direction, this also means some things even right here. Even right here. When one of the members of the church family has a surgery and needs their grass mode, no, it's not a matter of life and death. It's not a matter of survival. But it is still a matter of need, and we are to be contributing to those kinds of things as well. This is the kind of stuff that is to be regularly happening within a church family. Caring for one another, the bringing of meals, the mowing of grass, uh, the, the helping, the facilitating, all of this a part of the church. Contributing to the needs of believers. And then one last one to consider together. Number 13. Practicing hospitality. You see that at the end of verse 13 there, practicing hospitality. Hospitality actually comes up a, a lot in the Bible, more than what you would normally think, because we see it not just in the passages that say hospitality. We also see it practiced. We find 
in Scripture, it's a much bigger deal than what we in our land often think that it is. The, the Bible shows it to be a matter of common decency. Now, when we say the word hospitality here, instantly in our minds, what, what comes to our mind? Uh, you invite one family, if they don't have too many kids, one family over to our house, and we, we got to make sure we like them first. We have them over for a meal, they stay three hours, and then we send them on back to their home. Biblically speaking, the full definition of hospitality was to take in strangers, not just for a meal, overnight, care for their animals, breakfast and something for the road on the way out the door the next day. Now, we might have all kinds of squeamishness about that and all kinds of reasons why we think that might be a bad idea. But let me just repeatedly remind us, we do not change the Bible based on our opinions. We change our thinking and our opinions based on the word of God. We are shown in scripture. Now, understand that the first thing that we did speak of, of having a family that we like over, that is still hospitality. So don't think it's not. It is still hospitality. It's just that we need to expand our definition to include some things that we don't normally include. And in fact, the very word here for hospitality is philizenia. Philo or philo, love, Philadelphia, love, xenia of strangers. The very origin of the word means love for strangers. Now that word came to be applied to more than just strangers because we'll see the Bible show, show hospitality uh, to other believers, okay? Like th that you know, okay? So the, the usage of the word came to be used broader than just strangers, but the origin of the word actually comes from the love of strangers. It's what it, it actually means. Remember that Abraham showed hospitality to a group of men who turned out to be angels. And the Bible shows, good thing that he showed hospitality. Lot, while he was living in Sodom, showed hospitality to a group of men who turned out to be angels. Those angels saved his life. Good thing he showed hospitality. Some of the point. Uh, the prophet Elijah, whenever he would travel through the land of Israel, there was one particular woman who talked her husband into even building an addition onto their house so that this, this man could have a place to stay. And God blessed their home. Several times it kind of comes up, good thing they showed hospitality. In Hebrews 13, 2, we're told, do not, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, New Testament instruction, to strangers for by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Then in 1 Peter 4, 9, we're told, be hospitable to one another in the body of Christ. One another without complaint. Helpful little phrase at the end there too. Without complaint. So Hebrews says to do it towards strangers. Peter says to do it towards believers. There's a broad definition here. And then interestingly, Again, in 1 Timothy 5, we've been there several times today. In 1 Timothy 5, we're told about the widows who were put on a list, uh, cared for by the church, and in return, they gave some work and service to the church, that no widow was to be put on the list unless she had. And then there's a list of five or six kinds of uh, uh, character qualities and works that she must have done. She must have a reputation for good works. She must have washed believers' feet. And one of them is... She must have shown hospitality. And so part of, part of the reason why I, I, I tell you all of those is to show 
The Bible shows this is a bigger deal than what we tend to think. We tend to think this is a lesser kind of thing. The Bible really puts a greater emphasis on this. You know, we get a lot wrong just because we live in a modern times and our times influence us, but we change our thinking to match the scriptures. But I save the most significant passage in the Bible concerning this for last year. In Matthew 25, that scene at the judgment, one of the greatest passages in all the Bible, where the Lord Jesus, seated in glory, separates the sheep from the goats. And he tells the sheep why they will be brought into the kingdom of heaven. The works that demonstrated their faith. He says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Naked and you clothed me. One of the ones he mentions is, I was a stranger and you invited me in. And then to the wicked who are cast away into outer darkness forever and ever. He says, this is why you will not be led into the kingdom of heaven. I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty, you did not give me drink. Naked and you did not clothe me. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. We need to consider that very soberly. We need to consider very soberly that hospitality uh, is a part of the way that we show grace and care. We show that we are Christians. We need to bear this in mind when it comes to things like the Isaiah 117 house and fostering and adopting. Fostering and adopting would be like hospitality to its fullest expression. We need to bear this in mind when we encounter folks broke down on the side of the road and other opportunities that God puts in our path. And yes, it is the case. We know that scripture gives us cautions of things like, if, if any man will not work, neither shall he eat. So if, the, if, a, if a man spends all of his money on drugs and has no uh, money for his rent, you know, the Bible does tell us to use discernment. There's no doubt that we are to do that. And we wrestle through some of those things sometimes of when do you give and when do you not? When, when do we do some of these kinds of works and when is it actually detrimental to them? We wrestle through those kinds of things and it's difficult and you must as well. But let me encourage us to lean to the side of grace. Go the direction of grace. But then also think of hospitality as we normally think of it. Having people over that you know. We all know the temptation why we don't want to do that sometimes. It takes work. It takes effort. It is inconvenient just to clean the house for a bunch of people to come over is an ordeal in itself. At least it is when you have 47 kids like we do, okay? Then cooking for a bunch of people, that's a bunch of work. And then they leave and then you gotta clean all over again. And then you'll find if you have people over a lot, it's hard on your house. Kids break stuff. They stain your carpet. Guests sometimes let their kids do things. You have to bite your knuckle to keep from yelling, okay? Like it's difficult, it's inconvenient, but scripture shows this is a good work. This is an act of service. It's a good and fruitful work. Why is it good and fruitful? Well, towards the stranger, that's obvious. This is an obvious way of help. Towards the orphan in need, this is a matter of necessity and care. But why is it important for believers to invite other believers over who have food at their house and they have their own house? They could just stay at their house. Why is it important to have them over and feed them our food in our house? because it is crucial for believers to be together. It is 
crucial for Christians to share meals together for the sake of building fellowship. We go back to that word koinonia. It increases the fellowship of the body. And Christian fellowship is one of the most overlooked and undervalued of the ways that God has designed for us to grow in Christ. It's just, I'm telling you, I have lived a part of my Christian life where I did not have much fellowship. Now I live in a time where I have a lot of fellowship. I can tell you the difference is amazing. And I I mean, if you have never invested in fellowship before, for, for whatever reason, Sometimes people's personalities don't enjoy big groups, things like that. Okay, you you can keep it small. You can still have fellowship with a smaller group. But if you've never invested in this before, I just want to tell you, once you start doing it, you will start to see ways that it grows you, encourages you, strengthens you, and energizes you. I mean, it is just one of those undervalued parts of the Christian life. There is a reason why we're shown in the book of Acts that the believers in the early church didn't just do fellowship once in a while, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Meaning they carved out time. Meaning there are some, some Friday nights you just don't feel like it, but it's still, you know, to invest in this is something that I need to carve out the work and effort to do. I, I encourage you, Christian, put the investment into uh, fellowship. Along those lines, if, if you have never yet built real and solid Christian friendships. I just so highly encourage you, you will find it to have a strengthening effect and fellowship will be strengthening to your soul, which is why I will always push. I will keep holding out for you uh, to, to join and take part in things like the Wednesday night prayer meeting and the discipleship groups we have on Sunday nights. I am not gonna let up. I am going to keep pushing these kinds of things. The very first reason why you should come to like Wednesday night service is because it's not the only time we pray in a week, but it is the most significant. It's the most significant time we pray together. By the way, if you want to devote yourselves to prayer, that would be a very practical way to commit and make the Wednesday night time of prayer a priority in your week. Commit yourself to that. But the second reason why you should come to Wednesday night service is because we teach through another part of the Bible. The third reason is for what happens afterwards. What happens afterward is we hang around and we talk. And there are numerous Wednesday nights. I don't get home till close to 10 o'clock because we've been just hanging out for hours. You don't have to stay that long if that's not your personality. But hanging around afterwards and fellowshipping, this is one of those things. And then the discipleship groups that we do on Sunday nights. We intentionally designed this to share a meal together to facilitate fellowship. And it has been such a blessing to the life of this church to grow and increase that. So I encourage you to become a part of those things. And I encourage you to practice hospitality yourself. God designed it to facilitate fellowship. You can start small if that's your personality. You don't have to have 30 people over. It can be two Have folks over into your home. Practice hospitality. Because think about this. If it was designed by God as a work that we're called to do, and it builds the church, then it is an act of service to Christ himself. You are serving Christ himself by preparing the food and serving others, facilitating this fellowship. It builds the body of Christ. So I exhort you, believer, practice hospitality. Well, this ends this list of 13 exhortations. 
We've been shown this, if I could summarize it all in, in just kind of one sentence. Real and actual Christian love is not simply a sentimental emotion. Real and actual Christian love works. It serves. It acts. It practices. It does things. It considers how can I benefit the rest of the body of Christ. And then if you are here and you have never turned to Christ to be saved, as we've been talking about this, this group of the people of God, this group of the saints, we invite you. We invite you. We appeal to you. We give you Jesus's call. Come, come and be made right with God. Come and have your sins forgiven. Come and have the promise of eternal life. Come and enter this group that God has set his love on and he's working to give eternal life. You can be a part of this group, but only if you will come to God on his terms and not the ones you make up for yourself. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Place your faith in him. Pray to God and tell him that you know you are a sinner who deserves hell and that you trust in Christ and ask God to save you. And the Bible gives the promise that all who call on him will be saved. We, we plead with you even right where you sit right now. Pray and ask Christ to save you. And if you want to talk to somebody about that, I'm going to be at the back. Find me before you leave. I'd love to have a conversation with you more about how you can know Christ as Savior. Let me close this in prayer, and then I'll have one more announcement before we go. Let's close. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing in the building of your church. We ask, oh God, that you will continue to build us here for your glory. And God, I pray that you will help us to take these instructions, these exhortations, help us, oh God, to obey them, to apply them. We want to honor you. So lead us, oh Lord. I, I pray, oh God, that in these things specifically, we as a church will grow. And if any is, is here that has not yet been born again, God, I pray, open their eyes, draw them to yourself. Do not let up on them until they, are, they know that they are right with you, O oh God. So please, God, pursue. Bless us, O oh Lord, as we dismiss and we're gonna fellowship. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.